my name is Jason. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you on the porch. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, today, I, as we go into our RST talks, this is our last week in this series. This series is kind of just explaining about the movement of Jesus and how it's a movement worth engaging in, following, and spreading but also the stories of everyday people. And so at the end of this message, we'll have a video that shares some stories of what God is doing in our community. And I'm, my question today, my RST talk for you is this. Have you recently, with the world we live in and the pressure that is put on you, have you recently felt a little, how do I say it, ashamed or embarrassed or hesitant to say that you're a follower of Jesus like in the world today, there's a lot of this pressure and you're like, oh, I, I don't know if I want to claim this because I get maybe mislabeled of what I don't want to be. So I was at my neighbor's house about a month ago and they invited us over. We're new to the neighborhood. We're meeting them and they brought some other neighbors together. And so we're hanging out, having appetizers and drinks. And it's like, they asked Molly and I like, what do you guys do for work? <sighs> and I'm just like, what do I do? I work for a nonprofit. I help people, and they kept digging. It normally gets them out of my, like, hair, they, but they're like, what kind of nonprofit? Uh, it's like a kind of, like, faith-based nonprofit. What kind of faith? I'm like, it's a Bible-believing, following Jesus, Christian. And I say Christian, and I'm like, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, no. Now they think all the stereotypes of what I am. So I am arrogant. I'm self-righteous. I'm obviously not educated. Uh, I do not believe that science is true. And also I'm thinking they're assuming just small things like I hate women, I'm a racist, and I hate really anyone that's different than me. That's what I think when I, I don't know if you felt this, but there's this connotation that feels, and you don't know if people are actually thinking that, but it kind of feels like it at times, doesn't it? Interestingly enough, I saw this the other day and it just kind of made me laugh. You know, people say Christianity is a tool of white supremacy, that you're a racist if you are a white Christian. And what's interesting is this, that the average atheist in the world is a wealthy white man that has higher education. Yet, the average Christian in the world is a woman who is a woman of color in a developing country. See, our world paints a picture of what it means to follow Jesus through only an American lens, only through a lens that works for us and what we want to push or whatever agenda we want to push. But Jesus' movement is bigger than that. It is a worldwide movement. And so as we look at the way of Jesus today, I want us to think about maybe how you felt insecure about this, like me. I felt insecure like, oh, what does it look like for me now to claim Jesus? Because I've kind of got over the whole, like, people are going to cancel you now. I mean, people are just, I mean, if they're not, it's like, uh, you know, I'm going to just say, I don't want to listen to anything you say because you're this. Well, I'm not really worried that much about that now. I'm more worried about being misunderstood for something. I don't want to be misunderstood for my faith that is in Jesus. I don't want people to believe that I believe something that is not true, that is not the way of Jesus. Because on the other hand, there are also people that are followers of Jesus that are arrogant, that are greedy, that are hateful, that are angry. And I don't want to be labeled with that either. So what does it look like for me to not be misunderstood? Because I do believe in something. I do believe what Jesus claimed he said he was. And in John 14, 6, I want to show you what Jesus said about himself and then how that 
impacts and influences us. This is what Jesus said. He goes, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes a bold, audacious claim that now will ruffle some feathers because he claims that he is the way, that there is no other way to God, that he is king, that he is Lord, and if you want access to God, it must go through him. He said that. And all of a sudden, if you believe that, what does that say about you? A lot of people uh, view God as kind of like a mountaintop experience. So uh, I've heard this illustration happen that we're all trying to get to the top of a mountain. And the top of the mountain is with God, heaven, paradise, whatever you want. And people go, hey, Jason, your view of Jesus, that he's the way, he's one of the ways. So I'm climbing up a different path as following Jesus. Somebody else might be climbing up the path of Buddhism, but we're all going to the same direction. Another person is going, I'm going up Islam. Another one goes, I'm going up individualism in the pursuit of happiness. And that is the path. Most people would say there are multiple paths. What I'm here to proclaim today is that Jesus said he's the only path. And that seems almost narrow. It seems mean. It seems unloving. But today I want to show you that maybe it's the most loving thing he could say. My kids and I, we went up to uh, Buena Vista. Okay, I've been in a debate. Is it Buena Vista or Buena Vista? Like, okay, so Buena Vista people. Anybody that say Buena Vista? What are the Buena Vista people? Oh, okay, yeah, the, the like, color, the people that, they're like, I'm Coloradan. They call it Buena Vista. I call it Buena Vista. I think it's because I'm from Oklahoma, but Buena is easier than saying Buena. Uh, but Buena Vista. So we go up to Buena Vista, and Kaylor, <laughs> here he goes. He's like, dude, you should go check out St. Elmo's. It's this old ghost town that was uh, established in 1880, and it's still there. All the buildings are there, and it's above Mount Princeton. It's a beautiful drive. Your kids will love it. So this is me and my kids. And my wife, we all went up to St. Elmo's. It's this one-street town, and it's beautiful. You can see Mount Princeton. The hiking's unbelievable. The weather. And, like, it's just, like, been so kept, like, together. It's amazing that this small town is still in existence. And so we got up there. I'm like, this is awesome. It's beautiful. But when I was in Buena Vista, I typed in how to get... Not really how. I just typed in Google Maps. You don't really type in how. I typed in Google Maps, St. Elmo, and I hit directions. And you know what it took me? Up a one-way road, or it's a one-way to Buena Vista, there was, or to St. Elmo from Buena Vista. There was no other routes to get to St. Elmo. There was no other way to get there. And so I'm going up there, and I'm like, well, I have no other choice unless I, like, have a crazy off-road vehicle. Maybe I can go a different way. But I'm not angry that there's only one way to St. Elmo? I'm not angry that to get to this mountaintop experience, this beauty, that this is the only way. It's just the way. That's how it is. It's like, I got to go up this way. So today, I want to show you the way of Jesus. And in our study of Acts, there's something that happens. The, the church is misunderstood when they claim that Jesus is the way. 
And then there is a social pressure that follows when they go, we're following Jesus and it is the way. There is a social pressure that follows. And as we address this social pressure, I want, I want to ask you three questions. As we think of, is Jesus the way? I just want to ask you three questions and just to yourself respond do you th- what you think on each of these reflective questions. So the first question that I would love for you to ask yourself today, is Jesus your way? Jesus says he is the way, the truth, the life to God. Is he your way? Is he your path? Is he the one you're trusting in? As we uh, get back in Acts 19, where we're at in this passage is there, we're in the city of Ephesus. Again, when I think of Bible stories, I think of St. Elmo. St. Elmo is a one-street town, and that's what I think of these stories. Like Ephesus, one-street town, there's a saloon, there's a jail, and there's a market. No. Ephesus is 250,000 people. It is a huge city, and it is marked by the temple of Artemis. Artemis was, this temple was one of the seventh wonders of the ancient world. People would come from all of Asia and the world to Ephesus to worship and see the temple of Artemis. So when we're talking about this story right now, we're at the center of the world, and there's this huge group of people. And in verse uh, 23 of chapter 19, we pick up, from in our story, and it says this. About that time in Ephesus, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The followers of Jesus were not called Christians at this time. They were called the way. It was just the way of following Jesus. It was this way of life. It was this way that they were pursuing. Why were they called the way? Because they believed what Jesus said, that he was the only way to God. And in Roman and Greek culture, there were thousands of gods. And so they were pushing against this fact that there is a way to God. Not multiple ways to God, but a way to God. And as they pushed that, they believed in it and they lived in such a way. Now, as I say this, I know right now, some of the people in here might be going, this is really narrow, Jason. This is culturally even very narrow to proclaim that there is a only way to God and it is through Jesus. One of the aspects of Jesus today, I want you to consider, is narrow all that bad. We think of narrow things as terrible. We think, oh, that's so derogatory, that's a terrible way of thinking. But what if narrow is actually good? Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Jesus goes, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Only a few find it. What Jesus is proclaiming is there's going to be a lot of people saying this is the way to God. This is the way to God. It's going to be very broad. He goes, I have a narrow way, and it's following me. Have you ever thought about this? When you go up to a beautiful mountain experience, broad roads never get you to beautiful mountaintop views. You got to go through narrow ways. When I go through St. Elmo, it's not a big road. It's a small road to get me to the top. Also, when you drive on I-70, why do they have guardrails over all of I-70? It's because they know if you go off the road, you will die. There are preventions of a narrow path. It's to prevent you from going one way or the other and plummeting to your death. Maybe the same thing is true about Jesus. Maybe he loves us so much 
that he would say, I have a way for you to follow. I have a way that is true. I have a way that is good. I have a way that is life-changing that will bring you joy and hope and beauty. Molly and I, my wife, we, we've kind of like made some parameters in our kids' life. And I'm not setting this as for every person that's a parent here, but one of the parameters we're doing right now is we're just not letting our daughter, Selah, who is 11, have a smartphone. And she goes in with all her friends now, and she kind of feels weird because she's the only one without a smartphone. And she's like, oh, this kind of is hard. And we're just like, hey, we're just at a point in our life, I, I know the dangers of the Internet, and I, I don't feel you're mature enough to handle this right now. And we're just going to prevent you from being on TikTok and Instagram, even though it is so good for your soul, even though it is so meaningful, even though we know that social media is so good for 11-year-olds that are being impressed with all the things of the world right now, even though we know that, we're going to hold it back. I'm such a narrow dad, aren't I? I'm so narrow. Why? Because I love her. Narrowness does not mean hate or push. It means love. God loves you so much that he gave a way for us to live, to follow, and to know him. And it's not to say exclude other people. Because Jesus does not exclude. He wants every single person across the planet, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your socioeconomic background, he wants you, he's chasing after you, and no other religion, their God is not chasing after you. Jesus is chasing after you. Jesus went to the cross to die for you. Jesus loves you in his way. I promise, I believe with all my heart is greater than any other way. So is Jesus your way? What do you believe about it? Is he your way? The second question we must ask, are you following the way? Like, are you following after the things of the way? Is your life differently? It's not just, oh, I believe in Jesus, but I'm actually going to do something for Jesus. I want my life to look like Jesus. I want to follow him in that way. And we'll pick up in our story. Remember, there's this great disturbance in Ephesus. uh, And here's what happens in verse 24. It says this, a silversmith, named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see here how this fellow Paul has convinced and he has led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. So what's going on here? There's great disturbances happening because the people of the way are living differently. Again, just to put your, to know what's going on. It's not Paul and the disciples that the disturbance is happening. It's just the people, the ordinary people living the way have created this disrupting. And what was the disruptions? It was actually an economical one. It was that where they would, pa- they used to go by and they would see uh, this little silver shrines as they went to the temple of Artemis and they would buy them and then they would go worship Artemis. And what Demetrius is saying is he's going, you know, they're no longer buying my idols that I'm making and it's hurting my pocketbook. Like, it's not even just the people of Ephesus of the way. This is a big disturbance. It was, it was interrupting 250,000 person city. It's also interrupting the whole province of Asia. Everybody traveling here is no longer buying the idols What's so, I find so fascinating is they don't really go first time and are like, oh, Artemis is so beautiful. We love Artemis and no one's no longer obeying Artemis anymore. What do they care about? 
money. They care to hurt their pocketbook. I think we see this a lot. Sometimes beliefs that we believe in and we think are true and we stand up for, but if it hurts our pocketbook, then it's like, okay, I don't know if I believe that anymore. It was more about not what they believe, but their pocketbook. In Ephesus, people loved idols. They loved worshiping God through idols. Again, thousands of gods. And we don't love figurines anymore. I know none of you, most of you probably aren't like worshiping a little figurine, a silver statue that you're buying right now. But we all have idols in our life. And what an idol is, it's just something that replaces God. It's something that we put above God, that we go, this is now God in our life. This is what I'm following. It's not that they can't be in our lives, but it's when it becomes the thing in our life that is focal point of who we are. We are to love God more than anything else. One of these areas that I see over and over and over again, especially in our culture today, that I believe is becoming an idol and it's becoming so divisive is that of politics. We all see it that political idolatry is happening, believing that if politics are raised up and we have the right person in power, that then all our problems will be fixed. Uh, a guy named Josh Howerton, he just recently said this. I, this quote hit me hard. It says this. He goes, politics is religion will disciple you into a person of hatred. In a secular society, politics becomes religion. Political rallies become worship services. Campaigning becomes evangelism. Candidates become saviors. And you can't love your political enemies because you see them as demons to be exercised. You always quote somebody because you don't want to say the hard thing and let them say it so that people don't put it on you. I'm not saying you shouldn't care about the government, how you vote. But what I am saying is it can't become Jesus. It can't become king. It can't be the way, the truth, the life. Jesus in him alone is. And this is what happens in Ephesus. They make Jesus king. And they start living differently. It affects them. They stop buying idols. And it, all of a sudden it creates critical mass. And a movement is happening because they are no longer doing what the culture says to do. My question for you is this. Do people know that you follow Jesus by the way you act? Do people know that you follow Jesus by the way you do business, how you spend your money, by the way you love your neighbor, by the way you love your enemy? Do people know that you follow Jesus? Or are you just saying, ah, I follow Jesus, and it doesn't change anything? See, the way change people. So my question for you is, are you following the way? Is your life different? Do people know that you follow Jesus? I'm not saying that you're perfect, but I am saying you're different. If you follow Jesus and you claim that, we are to be different than the culture around us. We are to live in such a way that is different. Again, not perfection, but we will be different. And the third thing that I see in this passage is, do you stand up for the way? So what, the, what I mean by this is, you know, is people push against you following Jesus. How do you stand up against that? Like, what are you supposed to do when people say you're an idiot for being a Jesus follower? There's, you're this or this or this. What are you supposed to do when it's hard, when it's difficult, when people push against? And so I want to share the rest of the story and then pull some points out of this. Uh, it's a really good story, people. And most people would tell a pastor, I didn't even ask Ron to do this, but I'm going to anyway. They would say, never read 14 verses to an audience because they'll glaze over about uh, verse 5 or 6. But I believe you guys are different people. So today, I'm going to read you this story. 
you're going to focus and listen to it because I, I don't want to explain it. All. I just want you to hear it and see what happened in this. You guys ready? You good? Can you pay attention class for two and a half minutes? Okay. Thank you, Kaylor. I got a one amen. I appreciate you. Uh, okay, so here's what's happening. Remember, they're selling these shrines. People are frustrated. There's this disturbance that is happening. And we pick up in verse 28. So when they heard this, they were furious. Again, these are not the people of the way. These are the silversmiths. When they heard this, they were furious, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people, they see Gaius, and they seize Artarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Don't make fun of me for that, okay? And all of them rush into the theater together. So they get the guys that were with Paul, and they rush them into the theater, and they're frustrated with them, and there's a riot. This is not a small theater, though, people. It's a 24,000-person theater, meaning the riot and the disturbance was so big, they had to take it to a public theater to get that many people in there. There are probably people from the way, and there are people that were from this frustration. And it goes on to say, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd, they pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He monitored for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But they realized he was a Jew, that he was following the way, and they all shouted in unison, not for one minute, not for two minutes, not for five minutes, not for ten minutes, but for two hours. They shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See how high I hit that? (laughs) They're shouting for two hours. Can you imagine two hours just shouting the same thing over and over again? Then the city clerk, he quieted the crowd. The city clerk's kind of like the mayor. And he goes, says this. Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since their facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither Rob temples, nor blasphemed our goddess, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody. The courts are open, and there are pro-councils. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Hey, you guys did a great job. Thanks for Give yourself a hand. Good job listening. I see a few heads nodded off, but I'll catch up with you on the porch. I can fill you in on the story. This is a crazy scene, isn't it? You're like, just imagining 24,000 people potentially in this theater shouting for two hours. And so what does this even look like as the followers of the way are in this crowd or a part of this crowd or get dragged into this crowd? What's actually happening here? It's so interesting because uh, Paul actually wanted to get up and he wanted to, like, appear before the crowd and he wanted to say that, uh, make his defense because Paul loves a big crowd and he wanted to be like, oh, I want to go in and I want to share the gospel with these people. But they're like, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to do that. So what does it look like to actually stand up? Because these are just normal people. These aren't the famous people of the Bible. They're just the normal people here. What's all this mean? I see kind of a, a common thread in this story of what happened. And there's three things that I see of how they stood up. They stood up by not running away. 
They could have left town. They could have got out of there. All the people of the way could have been like, we're leaving. But we see more and more that the church of Ephesus continues to grow. Even in a riot, even against the things of the way, they did not leave Dodge. They didn't go get another ship and sail across the ocean. Oh, we'll find somewhere else. No, they stayed. They're like, we are not meant to run away. The second thing I see is they stood up by being with the people that were against them. So they were actually in this theater with people that were against them. They didn't push them away. They actually came closer to them. Brene Brown says this, people are really hard to hate up close. Too many people, when we get disagreements with people or frustrated or say, you're not following after what I'm believing in, we push away and we don't do things of love. But what Jesus' way is, is he goes, I'm going to bring those people close. People that are against us, I'm going to bring them close. I'm going to love them. I'm going to have conversations with them. I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to be angry at them. I'm not going to hate them. But in love, I'm going to bring them close. And then three, they acted in peace, not violence. You know, they didn't go in and throw another riot themselves. They didn't go, hey, we're going to attack these people because they're believing something different. They won't follow after the way, so let's go attack them. They weren't hostile in hostile places. They were loving in loving places. They weren't defensive. What I see about Jesus is Jesus always went into hard places. He went into places that where people were against them, that they wanted to kill him. And Jesus always did the same thing over and over again. And this was a characteristic of Jesus. He always brought grace and truth. He always brought them together. Jesus said, I am full of grace and I'm full of truth. I do both. But in our world, typically, we have either way too much truth or way too much grace. And we don't know the third way of following Jesus, which is full of truth, full of grace. It's both and. Here's an example. I had a guy a couple uh, months ago, he came up to me and he's like, hey, Jason, I, I'm struggle, struggling with pornography. And he wanted some counsel. So I could have done two different ways. or I had three options. I'll give you the three options. Option one is full of truth. And truth without grace is just kind of plain mean. But I could have just been really truthful and shared no grace. I could have been like, hey, man, I just want you to know you're an idiot. Stop looking on, on, on lines. Quit looking at it. Quit doing that stupid stuff. Did you know 55% of all divorce is caused because someone has an addiction to pornography and is regularly using it? That's true. The stats are true. But that doesn't mean it's the nicest way. Then I could say, oh, you know, in Ephesians 5.3, it says, do not even have a hint of sexual immorality. Bro, you got to clean yourself up. Stop looking at that stuff and quit being an idiot. There's, some, there's truth there, but it's really mean. Here's the gracious way. Only grace. Someone tells me, oh, hey, this is where I'm at. And I go, hey, man, I, I just want you to know, don't worry about it. Do whatever your heart tells you to do because God gave you his, your heart. And you should just go with your own desires. Like, do whatever suits you. Like, Whatever sexually you want, you should go after that. And I love you, and I think God loves you, and he forgives you. It's not that bad. Just keep going and be a good person and be gracious. And I'm just going to be gracious. Jesus' blood covers over all of it. It's not that big a deal. It's meaningless to not be the way of Jesus. But what did Jesus do? He brought grace, all of it, and he brought truth, all of it. And how grace and truth might work in this situation is when someone, he shared that with me, I go, man, I'm so thankful you shared that with me. That's so courageous of you. 
I can't believe you would because the world shames that. And I know in even Christian culture that you feel a lot of shame for that. But I want you to know I love you and I'm here to do whatever I can to help you. If you need accountability, you text me anytime. I will be there for you. If you need help, I will get you help. If you fall down, I will pick you up and put you back on the path and walk with you. Because grace and truth is real love. It's not just going, ah, I don't care what they do, so I'm not even going to help. No, I'm going to help. I'm going to come beside because his love is coming with them through. And then I'm going to get them some resources to help them. I point them to the, my buddy's website. Just side note, if you know anybody that ever needs some freedom from this area of their life, it's called thefreedomfight.org, thefreedomfight.org. Org. It's a program of 52 videos that help people get out of that uh, lifestyle and get break the addiction and break the shame cycle through a loving, gracious, and truthful way. I would point them to that. See, Jesus' way is not going all truth or only truth and only grace. It's all of both. It's perfect. So the church looked very different. They stood up differently. They presented to the world truth and grace. Because they asked these three questions. They go, is Jesus my way? And if he's my way, I'm going to make him Lord. I'm going to start following that. And I'm, I'm going to follow it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm going to live for it. Even when it's hard, I'm going to live for it. And then I'm going to stand up to it appropriately. I'm not going to be angry, hateful, but I'm going to bring full of grace, full of truth to people, and I'm going to share who Jesus is, is through my life, through my words, and ultimately through love. So today, as we finish this message, I want to just share with you not kind of how to do this from my thinking, but with our RST talks, we have seven people or so that are, just have these short interviews of what it's looked like for them to live out, to follow the way, to know Jesus is the way, and to stand up for the way. So go ahead and check this video out. adopted from Ethiopia and he is 10 years old and then we have Holland and Jude. Holland is a girl and she's nine and then Jude is seven. So we had three kids in two years and it's been really easy ever since. So <laughs> there's a lot of opposition against families in the world today. More than ever we are being really intentional with our kids especially at their ages um, to combat the, the forces against us in, in the world today. Family dinners are really important to us, making sure that our kids are not in too many extracurricular activities. And one thing that we've really realized is technology creates so much division in our family. So we have a lot of boundaries around technology, which of course our kids complain all the time about you know, being bored. But what it does is it forces them to be creative. And yes, it's annoying sometimes, but it also forces us to be intentional and creative as well. So we do jump roping to Bible verses. And so as they're memorizing Bible verses, they have to do their jump ropes to try to keep it like in their brain, but also keep their energy level where it needs to be. We've definitely seen a shift, especially this year, um, with just a desire to want to raise our kids up um, to serve the Lord. And, and that really includes implementing not just like the fun things and connecting as a family with their parents and each other, but really just uh, the way that they treat people at school and the way that they 
uh, talk to other adults and you know and it's it goes so much more than just um, hey we're gonna be respectful people but we're gonna treat people the way that Christ treats us and the way that he treats people and we're trying to create a culture in our family of uh, being different than the world so our kids don't go to Christian schools and they're exposed to a lot more than what we allow our kids to be exposed to. But we have to navigate those conversations and help them with those relationships. So if they're having trouble at school with a friend or someone in the neighborhood or something like that, we always talk to our kids about it's really important to stop whatever you're doing and start praying. In our home, one of our family values is to love people. And for us, that means people from different backgrounds, from different cultures, from different countries. Having a heart for the nations has always been something that was instilled into me as a child. And so for us, it's just something that we want to put into our own family, um, a heart for cultures and people. Uh, Sarah and I actually met in China, and then you know we adopted our oldest son from Ethiopia. Two of our kids are in Spanish immersion. Uh, our oldest was in Spanish immersion until last year. And even when they watch movies, a lot of times we make them watch it in Spanish, which sometimes they're not happy about. <laughs> yeah, actually one thing that's really cool, just in the last um, month or so, our kids, all three of them individually, have just decided they all want to be baptized, which is so exciting for us. And as parents, even just the ability to baptize our own kids is such a privilege. But really, it's the fruit of the effort of putting in, not only like us praying for our family and our kids, but like putting God first and, and memorizing the word and, and talking to our kids about putting that into their heart. And because of that, I feel like our kids, they have a hunger for the gospel. They have a hunger to know the Lord and to follow him and, and to see their friends and, and their family members who don't know the Lord to come to the Lord. And it's pretty exciting. We're really kind of taught to, to war like the world wars. I just think that's really important that we talk about do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I want my kids every day to walk that out. But what it takes from us is intentionality of us spending time in the Word. I want to model that for my kids and I want them to be able to grow up that way so they can model it for their kids and generations to come. One thing that I think has been really cool that's different than our peer group is I think the sacrifice of some of those spiritual disciplines. Um, I'm up here this weekend in Keystone with some friends and we all woke up really early this morning to read our Bibles and pray and I think that that's really unique. I don't think a lot of my peers would be willing to wake up early um, and to do that and just to spend time with the Lord. It's been sweet to have friends that would do that with me. I think another way that me and some of my friends live counterculturally is with the way we spend our time. Um, for example, like on the weekend or during the week, we like to spend time with high schoolers or mentor younger women or be part of simple churches and part of our church community. Um, and that takes some sacrifice and time away from things, other things we could be doing, but I think it's a really good way to live counterculturally and honor God. Uh, what I do differently is I would wake up early in the morning to make sure I get my quiet time in to set my mind right with God. And I also, try to limit my social media consumption by not having any, and then also limit my uh, TV watching by uh, twisting that out with reading books that draw me closer to God. Some of my best friends in the world are people that don't know who Jesus is, and I love them to death, and there's things that uh, they invite me to do that in the past, it would have been a no-brainer, yes, I would have showed up to, and and had a great time. Uh, but as I've, I've developed my relationship with God, um, it's just become something that it, it's not even enticing to me anymore. And just, I mean, an example of that is a great friend of mine getting married this fall. He invited me to go to Vegas with him and some of his buddies for his bachelor party. 
And as tough as it was, I, I just had to tell him no, not that there's anything inherently wrong with going to Vegas, but I know the type of person that I am and I know where that would lead and I just don't even want to put myself in the situation where there's that possibility. Uh, I've been in the professional work world for a year and a half now, so compared to most people, I'm in the stage where you're trying to save as much money as possible and that's super little. Um, I've been blessed a lot with some of the situations that I've been put in and I think that part of that is just due to the fact that even at this stage in my life, I've made it a huge commitment to tithe uh, to the church. Like looking back throughout the year and seeing like how much money that is that I could have saved, like could have put towards my first house. I have been so unbelievably blessed with just community and um, the progression in my professional life. And I think the thing that really stands out the most there is that I don't know if I'd be where I'm at now without giving that much. I mean, money is the one thing in the entire Bible that God tells us that we can test him in. And so, again, I know, I know everyone knows this, but you're not gonna be trusted with a lot if you can't be trusted with a little. So making that uh, important piece of my budget is super, super important to me. My name is Susan Simpson. I am a professional coach and I uh, work with executives and do leadership development, um, specifically targeting areas of crisis, conflict, and change. And I'm Michael Simpson, and I'm the founder and CEO of a social impact software company based in Denver. She moved to St. Petersburg, Russia uh, to live, and she was there for 13 years. I joined her six years later, and we got married. Disruptively attractive kingdom culture is really what, what Michael and I talk a lot about um, for how we are at work, for how we are in our marriage. Um, but going back to St. Petersburg, where my first real experience in, um, you know, in setting as a priority in terms of culture, kingdom culture, was in our ministry team. And we had a Frisian, um, we had a Tatar on our team with Islamic roots before she had come to faith, um, several uh, with Jewish roots, and then of course Russians and Americans all blended together. Yeah, we, we think a lot about the culture that we want to establish ourselves and around us, that kingdom culture is disruptively attractive. One of the things we do as we have a daily check-in, we make it a practice to either while we're cooking or um, eating, having a meal, um, we'll ask one another, what was your uh, highlight of your day? Uh, what, what did you find most challenging? Where did you see God at work? Um, what's your hope for tomorrow? And we pray. It's the, the pressures and the struggles and the crisis that um, will cause people to begin to seek. And yeah, we've seen that work both in Russia and here. Just, just those marriage questions drawing people closer to one another and, and to the Lord. So what we find is that when the world is kind of swirling around everybody and there's lots of chaos, um, when, we, you know, when we pray, uh, when we get back into the Word, we tend to settle and be the calm in that storm. And everybody is dealing with a lot of chaos in the world right now. And 
the most disruptively attractive thing that I think anybody could be is peaceful. Mm-hmm. As the CEO of my company, there are a lot of situations that come up, uh, human resource situations, partner situations, that um, I'm faced with the official thing to do and the right thing to do. But we had an employee that had an addiction problem and, and, and it was affecting his work. Instead of letting him go, I said, all right, you need to get help. We'll help you get help. And I'm going to give you another chance. But this is the line. Um, if you cross that line, you're not going to have a job here anymore. He later crossed that line. He didn't get the help he really needed. And as, even though we tried, what I did was I did let him go. But I didn't let him go until after he finished rehab. And we were able to pay for his disability and we were able to be with him throughout his entire rehab. And so I needed to be a man of my word and not move the goal line. Um, but I also could be a man of my heart and actually pay for his rehab and actually be with him in relationship. And now he's attending our simple church. What I love about that and what I love about this passage again is it was the everyday people, the heroes of this story were not Paul. They're the everyday followers of the way. And as we follow the way, our hope is not to criticize or demean or put down any other person, but it is to love them. It is to care for them. Our mission as a church is to love people into a lifestyle of following Jesus like to love them, to care about them, to bring them in. And then our vision is we're a global movement of everyday disciples, making disciples for generations to come. You, you are part of this movement, and, and my hope for you is it's the same that happened in Ephesus. That everyday people, the reason it, this disturbance happened is because people like on this screen... And I know so many of your stories. As I look at friends right now, I see you and I know that you live very differently than the world around us. And what I see it doing is I see it impacting and influencing. The reason God is moving in this church is not because there are great communicators up here. It's because of you guys living it out. And people seeing that and they're going, this is a different way. This is a better way. Let us be people that would continue to live out the way of Jesus. And it would be fragrant and be this pleasant aroma to the people around us and to God that we are living on mission for him. So my question is, will you join being a part of the way to love people, to care, and to do this very different than the world around us? Would you pray with me? God, we come right now and we just confess we don't have it all together we're not perfect and to begin with we didn't decide to clean up our act then you save us no God in our sin our shame our hardship our pain God we were there and you drew us to yourself God thank you that we get to experience your love and grace in our lives God I just pray right now if there's anyone here that has never made that decision to make Jesus the way that they could make that decision today and that they would put their trust in you. And God, as we uh, close this service, God, I pray that we, you might give us the wisdom and the strength to lead a life 
that is not perfect, but it is different. And that people might see that, they might respond, and our world might know that you are King of Kings, that you are Lord of Lords, and that you are the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name.